All right, so tonight, the, uh, the person at whom we shall be looking is Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch. So we will uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the matter. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good evening. We thank you that we can gather to look at the life of one of your many saints. We ask that you would be honored in what we do, that you would help me to speak clearly and truly. And we thank you for the, the men and women who have gone before us in the faith, that we might imitate them and learn from their victories and from their mistakes. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll open with a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now tonight we're looking at the life and the writings of Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. According to early tradition, the little child that Christ set before the disciples in Matthew 18 was the child who would later grow to be the man Ignatius. Now of the details of Ignatius' biography, we know next to nothing. And thus I finish. I'm done. Yeah, very, very well. <laughs> Now, there are little snippets of information, uh, both in his own letters and in Eusebius, and that's pretty much all that we have that's early information about the man. What we do know about him is that at some point during the reign of Domitian, he was appointed the bishop of Antioch. Antioch was one of the chief cities of the eastern half of the Roman Empire at this time. Now, Antioch had been founded in 300 BC by Seleucus Nicator. Seleucus was one of the Macedonian generals who succeeded Alexander the Great. The city served as the capital of the Seleucid Empire from 240 to 63 BC uh, when the Romans conquered it. Now the Romans had made Antioch the capital of their Syrian province. By the time that Ignatius lived there, the city was home to anywhere between a quarter million and half a million people. We're not entirely sure of the population numbers, but it's in that range. Now this makes it the third city in the empire behind only Alexandria in Egypt and Rome in Italy. Now in Acts chapter 11, we read that many who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over the martyrdom of Stephen fled to Antioch. It is from this time that the Antiochian church was established. Now, we also read in the book of Acts that the church in Jerusalem heard reports from these exiles that many had believed in Christ in Antioch due to the bold preaching of the men that had gone from Jerusalem to Antioch. So this was new and exciting. They sent Barnabas to Antioch to figure out what was going on. Barnabas thought this was great. He preached there also. And he saw that the city was ripe for the gospel. And so he sent and found Paul who was back at this time in his hometown of Tarsus and brought him to this great city. It was also in Antioch that we were first called Christians. Uh, 
the word Christian was probably intended as a slur, uh, but we kind of owned that. And here we are, 2,000 years later, Christians. In Acts 13, we read about the men who were leading the church in Antioch. These men included Barnabas, Simon Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and Paul. And there's a few interesting things about these men. And this church is a mixed multitude. It has Jews and Gentiles. Barnabas and Paul are Jews. Lucius is a Roman from North Africa. And he is likely the Lucius mentioned by Paul in Romans 16. Manaen is a personal friend of Herod the Tetrarch. <laughs> so this means that Manaen is friends with the dude who stole his brother's wife and murdered John the Baptist. Okay, that's the company Manaen used to keep. <laughs> now, he probably would have been in Herod's entourage during those events. <laughs> probably. So Manaen has seen some things. <laughs> he's a friend to that guy. And he's one of the leaders in the Antioch church. These are the men who founded and established the church that Ignatius grew up in. If Ignatius is indeed the child in Matthew 18, then he would have likely have been very young when persecution broke out in Acts 11, and then he would have been moved likely by his parents north to Antioch. He grew up in a church that was shaped by suffering and martyrdom. Now, according to Eusebius, he was made bishop of Antioch during Domitian's reign. So this would be some 40 or 50 years after the events in the Gospels recorded. So we're talking about the seven... Pardon? He started his reign in... I don't have the year in front of me, but it was in the eight... It was in the 80s. Because Trajan took over, I believe, in 94 or 96... Uh, Domitian didn't last that terribly long, maybe a decade and a half, I think. So according to Eusebius, Ignatius is made bishop of Antioch during Domitian's reign. So Ignatius would have been an older man in his 60s or 70s at the time. Now Eusebius states that he was the second bishop of the church in that city after Evodius, and he was followed in that office by a man named Heros. Now, there's, we have a book called The Martyrdom of Ignatius, and according to some statements there, he led the church of that city through the storms of the Domitian persecution. And there we read, Like a good pilot, by the helm of prayer and fasting, by the earnestness of his teaching, and by his constant spiritual labor, he resisted the flood that rolled against him, fearing only lest he should lose any of those who were deficient of courage or apt to suffer from their simplicity." It's a marvelous thing to be known as someone apt to suffer due to your simplicity. <laughs> Wherefore, he rejoiced over the tranquil state of the church when persecution ceased for a little time, but was grieved as to himself that he had not yet attained to a true love to Christ, nor reached the perfect rank of a disciple. For he inwardly reflected that the confession made by martyrdom would bring him into a yet more intimate relation with the Lord. Wherefore, continuing like a divine lamp, enlightening everyone's understanding by his expositions of the Holy Scriptures, he at length attained to the object of his desire. For some reason, which is not clear to us, Ignatius found himself a condemned man. The circumstances, as far as we know, run somewhat like this. Now, the Emperor Trajan 
Okay, so I just mentioned Domitian. Okay, Domitian is followed by... No. Anyone? Anyone? Going once? Nope. Domitian was the brother. Good guess. No, Domitian was followed by Nerva. Nerva didn't last very long. Uh, he appointed Trajan as his successor. Trajan succeeds Nerva. So uh, that would make Trajan the second of the five good emperors, at least according to Edward Gibbon. Now, Edward Gibbon uh, was not much a fan of the church. I'm not sure he gets to define what a good emperor is. But Trajan, and under Trajan, the empire reached its greatest extent, okay? So the most people under rule, the largest tax base, the largest, uh, well, maybe not the largest army, yeah, not the largest army, but he had 33 or 34 legions, but he conquered uh, all the way down to modern-day Basra in the, um, in the Gulf. So he took significant territory from the Persians, including their capital at Tessaphon. He had conquered Armenia, and he also conquered um, what would be modern-day Czechoslovakia, well, Czech Republic and Slovakia, up into that region. Uh, which they called Dacia at the time. So he was a fighting emperor. He was, he was known as a skilled man of war. Now, Trajan had been the governor of the Syrian province before becoming emperor, so he was familiar with the territory. But when he became emperor, he was in Antioch, either in 106, 113, or 115, or all three of those dates. We're not entirely sure. Uh, the historical record is a little bit ambiguous. Now, we know that in 106 to 107, Trajan went and conquered the Nabataean kingdom. So that's modern-day uh, Jordan. Petra, uh, the old city of Petra that you can sometimes visit, that was a city in the Nabataean kingdom that Trajan conquered in 106-107. Uh, so he conquered Jordan and the northern part of what's now Saudi Arabia. Eusebius, the historian, states that our bishop ran into his troubles with Trajan at this time, in 106 or 107. Now, there are other historians that think that the arrest, conviction, and martyrdom of Ignatius happened in connection with the Parthian War, which happened uh, from 113 on. Uh, and we know that Trajan was in Antioch in 115, having just conquered Armenia. Now, if you've got a map in your head, that means that Trajan's gone south and then north and then south and then north and then east. and then He's all over the place. <laughs> he's a very busy emperor. Is Antioch on the Turkey? Antioch is in modern-day Syria. Yeah, down by the coast. Is it inland? Is it or is it coast? It's inland, but not by much. Oh, okay, all right. Mm-hmm. It's not far inland from the, uh, the Mediterranean. So there's some confusion about the dates. Um, now, I hold to Eusebius' dates, the earlier dates, the 106 or 7 dates, because Eusebius is very clear which year of Trajan's reign this happened. And he might have been wrong, but I kind of doubt it. Now, we don't know why Trajan was not pleased with Christians, but Trajan was not pleased with Christians. He had standing orders going back to the beginning of his reign that anyone who was a Christian should be made to recant their faith upon pain of death. Now, if you read some of the emperor's correspondence with Pliny the Younger, who is the prefect of Bithynia, you find that Trajan did not think it proper for Christians to be hunted, but if they were brought before the courts, then they must recant. And if uh, they don't, then they die. 
Now somehow Ignatius was brought before the emperor while he was in Antioch. So the emperor is in Antioch, and the bishop of the church is drugged in front of him. And we have a record of their conversation in, uh, in the document that I mentioned earlier, the martyrdom of Ignatius. Basically, it was a short, curt conversation. Recant, no, okay. <laughs> Off with your head. Now, we don't know, again, the circumstances uh, how Ignatius was arrested. But probably a greater mystery is what happens next. For some reason, which is utterly lost to history, we have no idea why, Trajan orders the saintly bishop to be transported to Rome for execution. Rome's a long way from Antioch. There is no good reason to transport an 80-year-old man halfway around the world so that some dogs can get a feast. And this is exactly what Trajan does. We don't know why. Normally, the execution of a Christian martyr is carried out immediately. We saw that last time when discussing Polycarp, that he was basically arrested and executed on the same day. We don't know why. It is possible that Trajan did not want to have a civil disturbance in Antioch while he's preparing his military for an invasion. It's also possible that it just tickled his fancy to send an old man on a long trip to a certain death. We don't know. The route that the bishop took to get to Rome was not a direct route either. If you look at a map, he took a very circuitous route. Now, from Antioch, you would go down to the coast to Seleucia, and you would take a ship from there. And he took a ship to Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir in Turkey. Smyrna is not a normal way to get to Rome from Seleucia. One would normally sail to Cyprus or Crete, and then to Beneventum and go overland on the Appian Way, or you'd sail around Italy, land at Ostia, and then walk 15 miles to Rome. But he went to Smyrna. In Smyrna, he was reunited with Polycarp, his old friend. So these events happened a couple of years before the martyrdom of Polycarp. From there, he wrote his letter to the Roman church. Then he was taken to Troas and Neapolis and overland to Philippi. Philippi is in Macedonia. <laughs> From Philippi, he crosses the Balkans on foot to Epirus, which is modern-day Albania, and sailed from there out of the Adriatic around Italy to Ostia and then walked to Rome. It's the most circuitous route you could take from point A to point B. Uh, the only place he didn't visit was Britain. I mean, Now, in Rome, he's met by the Church of Rome. They come out to meet him. According to our sources, he spent only a few hours with the Church of Rome and then was immediately taken into the Flavian arena and thrown to the wild beasts next to Pluto's altar at the one end. He died and went to be with our Lord in 108, according to Eusebius. Now, along the way, Ignatius was allowed to visit with many churches and he wrote letters to several of these churches as he went by. And it is in his letters that we largely know this man. Uh, it is also in his letters that considerable controversy exists. So we're going to touch briefly on that and then move to the letters. 
Ignatius has seven letters attributed to his pen that are widely accepted as being genuine. There are at least eight that are considered spurious. The eight spurious letters, or fake letters, appear to have been written by a much later author. We're not sure who tried to forge letters in Ignatius's name, uh, but the internal evidence with them is very strong that they are forgeries. The style is remarkably different from the earlier letters, and the issues referred to and talked about in those letters come from later eras. And the earliest uh, sources that we have also do not mention these later letters at all. I am not sure what would possess a man several centuries after Ignatius to take up pen and pretend to be him. Pious forgery is forgery. And it seems to me that later editors and writers may have had particular access to grind regarding issues of their own day, but did not possess the intellectual or moral horsepower to fight these fights on their own merits. Pious forgery is something we will come to in church history often. And where the issue arises, I will be sure to point it out to you. There is also the fact that these letters come to us in several forms. These letters exist in a short form, a long form, and a Syriac translation. The Syriac translation seems to have been made of the shorter form and is made somewhat later. So the Syriac that we have is a translation. Most scholars agree that the longer form is a later expansion of the shorter and likely done by the same hand that did the, uh, the fake letters. So most scholars are led to believe that the shorter versions of these genuine letters are the ones he actually wrote. And it is from the short letters that I'll read selections today. Of the acknowledged letters, we have the following. An epistle to the churches of Ephesus, Magnesia, Tralius, Rome, Philadelphia, and Smyrna. There is also a letter to Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. These letters treat mainly with Ignatius' desire to see unity in the local church context, his desire to see officers of the church be respected and to be respectable, and he also speaks on suffering for the sake of Christ. So, I'm going to read some selections for you so you can get a feel of the flavor of this man. In his epistle to the Ephesians, he writes in the introduction, Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus. Now, he, he, he calls himself Theophorus in every letter. Theophorus is a, uh, is a name that means God-bearer. So this is either a reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit is in him, or potentially a reference back to Matthew 18, where he was literally on Christ's lap, born by God. We're not sure. But he calls himself, and his name is also called Theophorus, so, Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church which is, which is at Ephesus in Asia, deservedly most happy, being blessed in the greatness and fullness of God the Father, and predestined before the beginning of time, there's a reference right there to Ephesians chapter 2, that it should always be for an enduring and unchangeable glory, being united and elected through the true passion by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, abundant happiness through Jesus Christ, and his undefiled grace. So this is a very apostolic opening. He took his letter writing cues from Paul. 
Now, he continues on in chapter 1. He says, I have become acquainted with your name, much beloved in God, which ye have acquired by the habit of righteousness, according to the faith and love in Jesus Christ our Savior, being followers of God and stirring up yourselves by the blood of God, ye have perfectly accomplished the work which was beseeming to you. For on hearing that I came bound from Syria for the common name and hope, trusting through your prayers to be permitted to fight with beasts at Rome, so that by martyrdom I may indeed become the disciple of him who gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God, ye hasten to see me. I received therefore your whole multitude in the name of God through Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love and your bishop in the flesh, whom I pray you by Jesus Christ to love and that you would all seek to be like him. Okay, there's a couple of themes that have already entered his writing. First, he wants to make perfect his faith by martyrdom. This is a theme in Ignatius. He's, he's an old man, he's run his race, he is condemned and he's on his way. And he is willing to suffer. Second, this is very interesting, Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus. Yeah, we've heard this name before. This is likely the slave that Paul returned back to Philemon. According to church tradition, that's this Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus. It's always interesting when you, uh, when you run into one of those characters in the Bible and then in the fathers. Now, he spends some time um, exhorting the church to unity. And he, uh, he says, wherefore, and this, this is going to be another theme of his writing. In chapter 4, wherefore, it is fitting that ye should run together in accordance with the will of your bishop, which thing also ye do. For your justly renowned presbytery, worthy of God, is fitted as exactly to the bishop as strings are to the harp. Therefore, in your concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. And do ye, man by man, become a choir that becoming harmonious in love and taking up the song of God in unison, ye may with one voice sing to the Father through Jesus Christ, so that he may both hear you and perceive by your works that you are indeed the members of his Son. It is profitable, therefore, that you should live in an unblameable unity, and thus ye may always enjoy communion with God. So the, the church is enjoined to be of one accord with their leadership, to be in union with each other, and that this is profitable for them. He will return to this theme again and again and again. Respect your leadership, be in union. Then he also writes in chapter 5 of this letter, he therefore that does not assemble with the church has even by this manifested his pride and condemned himself. The early church comes down hard <laughs> on the issue of whether or not we should gather to worship. Absolutely, you must. Now he also talks about uh, heretics and comes out against them, as one should. He talks about uh, these men while they are practicing, practicing things unworthy of God whom ye must flee as you would wild beasts for they are ravening dogs 
who bite and devour. And he says, there's one physician, one truth, one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit. He's referring to Jesus Christ. Both made and not made. Right? That sounds very much like the Nicene formula, visible and invisible. God existing in flesh, true life and death, both of Mary and of God, first possible, then impossible, even Jesus Christ our Lord. This one physician, as opposed to heretics. Now he, uh, he has some exhortations in here also, where he says, uh, to echo Paul, and pray ye without ceasing in behalf of other men. For there is in them hope of repentance that they may attain to God. This is full of pastoral wisdom. See then that they may be instructed by your works, if there be no other way. So if a man won't listen to you, instruct him by your works. Be ye meek in response to their wrath. Humble in opposition to their boasting, to their blasphemies, return your prayers. In contrast to their error, be ye steadfast. Steadfastness is a thing that Ignatius returns to again and again. And for their cruelty, manifest your gentleness. He also writes of meeting frequently together. Take heed then often to come together to give thanks to God and show forth His praise. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan are destroyed and the destruction at which he aims is prevented by the unity of your faith. Nothing is more precious than peace by which all war in both heaven and earth is brought to an end. It seems that there may have been an impulse in the early church to forsake the regular meeting of the church. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, in his letter to the Magnesians, he writes, after the introduction, Having been informed of your godly love so well ordered, I rejoiced greatly and determined to commune with you in the faith of Jesus Christ. For as one who has been thought worthy of the most honorable of all names, Theophorus, in these bonds which I bear about, I commend the churches in which I pray for a union both of the flesh and the spirit of Jesus Christ, the constant source of our life and of faith and of love, to which nothing is to be preferred but especially of Jesus and the Father in whom, if we endure all the assaults of the prince of this world and escape them, we shall enjoy God. So again, this theme of perseverance and unity. Perseverance and unity. He also writes that they should honor their bishop. This is an interesting little tidbit. Remember what Paul said to Timothy. Do not let men despise you on account of your youth. He says here, now it becomes you also not to treat your bishop too familiar, too familiarly on account of his youth, but to yield him all reverence, having respect to the power of God the Father, as I have known even holy presbyters to do, not judging rashly from the manifest youthful appearance of your bishop, but being themselves prudent in God, submitting to him, or rather not to him, but to the Father of Jesus Christ, the bishop of us all. So they have a young bishop in Magnesia. And he tells these people, show this man proper honor. He also writes, let nothing exist among you that may divide you. But be ye united with your bishop and those that preside over you as a type and evidence of your immortality. 
It's very interesting that he would say that unity in the church is a type and evidence of immortality, of the resurrection. He said there's something in Christian unity pointing forward to that end. Another interesting and historical note is that in chapter 9, these are Roman numerals, I have to interpret them. In chapter (laughs) 9, he gives us an early proof that the saints had already begun to meet on the Lord's day and not on the Sabbath. He writes, If therefore those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come into the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death, whom some deny, by which mystery we have obtained faith and therefore endure, again that theme of endurance, that we may be found the disciples of Jesus Christ, our only master, how shall we be able to live apart from him whose disciples, the prophets themselves, and the Spirit did wait for him as their teacher? So it's a long run-on sentence, as these Greeks are wont to do. But, he, but note, already early in the first century, the church is meeting on the Lord's Day, not on the Sabbath. He also writes something that reminds me of Galatians, where he says it is absurd to profess Jesus Christ and to Judaize. He's clearly read Paul. And then he writes, These things I address to you, my beloved, all these warnings that he gives, not that I know any of you to be in such a state, but as less than any of you, I desire to guard you beforehand, that ye fall not upon the, the hooks of vain doctrine, but ye attain the full assurance in regard to the birth, the passion, and the resurrection which took place in the time of the government of Pontius Pilate, being truly and certainly accomplished by Jesus Christ, who is our hope, from which no one of you may ever be turned aside. So he sends these warnings, not because he's heard any bad things, but because he wishes to prevent them from going into sin. It is always good to hear a warning. He also wrote to the Trallians. Now, I'm not going to read much of this letter, There is an interesting thing. At one point he talks uh, about deacons and the bishop. Again, he, he harps on unity, as he should. He says here, For since ye are subject to the bishop as to Jesus Christ, you appear to me to live not after the manner of men. So there's something, uh, there's something supernatural about men living in subjection to one another. Not after the manner of men, but according to Jesus Christ, who died for us, in order by believing in his death, ye may escape from death. It is therefore necessary that, as ye indeed do, so without the bishop, ye should do nothing, but should also be subject to the presbytery, as to the apostle of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, in whom, if we live, we shall at last be found. And then he has this interesting note. It is fitting also that the deacons, as being the minister's of the mysteries of Jesus Christ should in every respect be pleasing to all. For they are not ministers of meat and drink, or not merely ministers of meat and drink, but servants of the church of God. They are bound, therefore, to avoid all grounds of accusation against them as they would fire. Now that, I think, is great. Uh, None of our deacons showed up tonight. Hmm. 
I was really hoping at least one would. Now it's on record that they didn't show up, and that was for them. So, you know who you are. <laughs> now, the, uh, there's, he also mentions some schism. He talks about avoiding heresy, and uh, he talks about some schism, some heresy that is uh, interesting because we generally think that this heresy shows up later in church history, but here it is. So he writes, uh, be on your guard, therefore, against heretics, he's talking about. But he's talking about the, uh, the kind of fellow that would think or say that Jesus Christ did not really suffer on the cross. It was a fake suffering. Now, uh, this, is the, uh, uh, this is docetism uh, from the Greek word dokain, to seem or to appear. He writes, but if as some that are saying God are without gods, let me repeat, that, but if as some that are saying without God, that is the unbelieving, say that he only seemed to suffer, then why am I in bonds? Why do I long to be exposed to the wild beasts? Do I therefore die in vain? Am I not then guilty of falsehood against the cross of our Lord? So these guys have been going around saying that Jesus only appeared to suffer on the cross. Now this heresy takes up, uh, in the next century, quite a number of people wrote books against it. Uh, But it's earlier than many scholars think. It's right there in the first century. As I said in our previous lecture, all heresies (laughs) that have plagued the church thus far appear in the first 200 years. Uh, He then writes to the Romans. This is an interesting letter. I would encourage you to read it yourselves. But the main argument of the letter is that he's asking the Romans, please do not prevent me from suffering martyrdom in Rome. He says, I know that you can get me off on this. You have sufficient political pull to get me off. Please don't. He says, for if ye are silent concerning me, I shall become gods. But if you show your love to my flesh, I shall again have to run my race. And this is an old man, remember. He's in his 80s, possibly 90s. He says, pray then, do not seek to confer any greater favor upon me than that I may be sacrificed to God while the altar is still prepared. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. This is what the man is really saying. He also uh, (laughs) talks about his preparation for meeting the beasts in Rome. From Syria even unto Rome I fight with beasts, both by land and sea, both by night and day being bound to ten leopards, I mean a band of soldiers, (laughs) who even when they receive benefits, show themselves all the worse. (laughs) The nicer I am to these ten idiots, the worse they treat me. But I am more instructed by their injuries to act as a disciple of Christ. Yet I am not thereby justified. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. 
And I pray that I may be found eager, that they may be found eager to rush upon me. Pardon me in this. I know what is for my benefit. Now I begin to become a a disciple. And let no one of things visible or invisible envy me that I should attain to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shattering of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Christ. All the pleasures of the world and all the kingdoms of this earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die in behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. Permit me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. He says, then, the prince of this world would fain carry me away and corrupt my disposition towards God. Let none of you, therefore, who are in Rome help him. Rather, be on my side. That is, on the side of God. Do not speak of Jesus Christ, and yet set your desires on the world. Let not envy find a dwelling place among you. Nor even should I, when present with you, exhort you to it, be persuaded to listen to me, but rather give credit to those things which I now write. For though I am alive while I write to you, yet I am eager to die. My love has been crucified, and there is no fire in me desiring to be fed. But there is within me a water that liveth and speaketh, saying to me inwardly, Come to the Father. I have no delight in corruptible food, nor in the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, the heavenly bread, the bread of life, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became afterwards of the seed of David and Abraham. And I desire the drink of God, namely his blood, which is incorruptible love and eternal life. And then he says, remember in your prayers the church in Syria. They're without a shepherd. And he even tells us the date he wrote it. The the day before the 9th of the Calends of September. Uh, You don't remember your Roman dates. It's the 23rd day of August. He also wrote to the Philadelphians... Much of the same. And to the church in Smyrna, much of the same. Um, He also talks about docetism, or docetism, about this appearing, Christ appearing to suffer. He warns them against it as well. And... I'm not going to read any of the Smyrnian letter. I'm going to go to the letter to Polycarp, and we'll finish there, and then have some concluding thoughts. He writes this again. Remember, this is his friend Polycarp. They had both been disciples of John. Ignatius, who is called Theophorus, to Polycarp, bishop of the church of the Smyrnians, or rather, who has, as his own bishop, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, abundance of happiness. 
Having obtained good proof that thy mind is fixed on God as upon an immovable rock, I loudly glorify his name that I have been thought worthy to behold thy blameless face, which may I ever enjoy in God. Now, how many of you have written a letter to a friend like that? Yeah, some of us have never written a letter to a friend. Okay, that's, that's a problem. An email. Viewing you is like looking at the very face of God. <laughs> so, he says, I entreat thee by the grace with which thou art clothed to press forward in thy course. So again, perseverance. And to exhort all that they may be saved. Maintain thy position with all care, both in the flesh and in the spirit. Have a regard to preserve unity, than which nothing is better. Bear with all, even as the Lord does with thee. This is marvelous pastoral wisdom. Support all in love, as also thou doest. Give thyself to prayer without ceasing. Implore additional understanding to what thou already hast. Be watchful, possessing a sleepless spirit. Speak to every man separately, as God enables thee. Bear the infirmities of all as being a perfect athlete in the Christian life. Where the labor is great, the gain is all the more. This is great, marvelous wisdom. If thou lovest the good disciples, no thanks are due to thee on that account. But rather, seek by meekness to subdue the more troublesome. Every wound, every kind of wound is not healed with the same plaster. Mitigate violent attacks by gentle applications. Be in all things wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. For this purpose thou art composed both of flesh and spirit, that, you, that thou mayest deal tenderly with those evils that present themselves visibly before thee. And as those that are not seen, pray that God would reveal them unto thee, in order that thou mayest, not, in order that thou mayest be wanting in nothing." but mayest abound in every gift. This is something that perhaps in seminaries has not been emphasized much. The prayer of a man who leads in the church is absolutely necessary. And here, Ignatius is telling Polycarp, continue to pray for yourself that God would give you that which you need to benefit your people. He says also, the times call for thee as pilots do for the winds, and as one tossed with tempest seeks for the haven, so that both thou and those under thy care may attain to God. Be sober as an athlete of God. The prize set before thee is immortality and eternal life, of which thou art also persuaded. The prize set before a minister is immortality and eternal life, not merely of his own, but that of his flock. Then he says of heretics, let not those who seem worthy of credit but teach strange doctrines. So he looks nice, sounds nice, but teaches strange things. Don't let that man fill you with apprehension. Stand firm as does an anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to conquer. This guy's a great writer. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to conquer. And especially we ought to bear all things for the sake of God that he 
also may bear with us. Be ever becoming more zealous than than thou art. Weigh carefully the times. He also says later, Do not let widows be neglected. Be thou after the Lord their protector and friend. The pastoral counsel in this short letter is great. Uh, Flee evil arts, but all the more discourse in public regarding them. So don't practice witchcraft. Warn people about it. Uh, This is, yeah. Then he talks about... um, about the presbyters and deacons. Or he talks to them. He says, Give ye heed to the bishop, that God may also give heed to you. My soul be for theirs that are submissive to the bishop, to the presbyters and to the deacons, and may my portion be along with them in God. Labor together with one another, strive in company together, run together, suffer together, sleep together, and awake together as the stewards and associates and servants of God. Please ye him under whom ye fight, and from whom ye receive your wages, let none of you be found a deserter. Let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet, your love as your spear, and your patience as a complete panoply. Panoply is a word referring to the complete assembly of a man's warfighting gear. Let your works be the charge assigned to you, that you may receive a worthy recompense. Be long-suffering, therefore, with one another in meekness, as God is towards you. May I have joy of you forever. He also writes that a Christian has not power over himself, but must always be ready for the service of God. Again, pressing on. O Polycarp, most blessed in God. That's how he refers to him, his friend. So some, some concluding thoughts. Ignatius was a good shepherd. He grew up in a persecuted church. And when it was his turn to lead, he led his church through a very ferocious persecution. He desired martyrdom as we saw in his letter, especially to the Romans. However, this desire did not prevent him from being like a divine lamp for his people. So some things to consider. One, his desire to be with Christ did not drive him from the performance of his pastoral duties. Rather, it drove him towards them. He was a widely loved and revered man in his own city. His leadership through the Domitian persecution resulted in the spiritual strength of the Antiochian church and in its growth. The second thing to consider is that he grew up in a church which had known nothing but martyrdom. Most of the leaders of the church in this era suffered martyrdom. Basically, if you were elevated to church leadership, that was an effective death sentence. Ignatius had watched the apostle suffer. He had seen his loved ones suffer. His friend Polycarp would follow him to martyrdom a few years later. It may look very strange to us that a man would want to suffer or that he should look for martyrdom, but this was the highest good 
in his day that a Christian could hope for on earth. He was guaranteed to suffer. He didn't have a choice. So I believe we should moderate our censure of this desire for suffering and martyrdom with the knowledge that their church was under fire in a way that ours is not. And the church grew materially and visibly because of this suffering. We know that from the history. Every time persecution was applied to the church, it exploded in numbers. Third, Ignatius loved the church and he prized her unity. Every letter he wrote is full of warnings against division and it is full of praise of unity. This is a good thing for us to think on and to consider practically. His zeal for the unity of the church is a thing we would do well to learn. He didn't have much time for schismatics. Four, Ignatius had a high office, or a high view of the offices of the church. In every letter, he commends willing submission to the bishops, elders, and deacons of the church. It was of the utmost importance to him that the churches show reverence to these officers, as these are the under-shepherds of Christ. Now, this is a praiseworthy thing that we would do well to recover. We live in an age where the church has elevated many unworthy men into office. And this has directly resulted in the wrecking of the authority of the church, either within its own affairs or in the world at large. Rulers in the church must be worthy of the respect owed, and the congregations must freely give such. So his attitudes towards the offices of the church is one we need to recover. Now on the matter of church government, and this is the fifth point, we are officially a two-office church, so we don't use the term bishop. In our church order, a bishop would be analogous to a pastor who is an elder who is first among equals, the public face of the congregation. So in this practice, we might have a formal difference uh, between our practice and the Antioch church, but a functional similarity. The bishop worked in in much the same way as a pastor does now. During the Protestant Reformation, these letters became controversial <laughs> on this point because the, uh, the Protestants went back to Ignatius and they were like, hey, we don't see any of the trappings, any of the trappings of Rome here. We see a bishop, we see elders, and we see deacons. So what's with all this junk? And then the, the Romans came back with, ah, but they have bishops. And they argued. Here we are. For the reformers, the stunning lack of the, uh, the trappings and extravagance in Ignatius was both refreshing and instructive. Many of the early first-generation reformers referred back to this man's writings in their defense of our current practices. So in conclusion, I give you Ignatius, bishop of Antioch, martyr for the faith, who made good his confession of Jesus Christ and awaits with us the resurrection of the dead in the day of the returning of our Lord. Amen. So, any questions? Yes? Yeah, so you talked a little bit about the heresies that he dealt with. Yes. Um, Like, for example, Christology, whether or not Christ was 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested because there's a lot of debates in the modern day about whether or not we should baptize infants, uh, the infants of believers. Mm. Does Ignatius ever address that? No. Uh, that issue shows up later. He he only mentions baptism in the sense that he he commends us to be worthy of it. <laughs> he actually doesn't describe any any sacramental ordinance at all. He mentions it. He mentions the Eucharist. Moves on. So there's a lot of assumptions then that are only debated uh, hundred years later. Yeah, mo- most of the. Um, most of what I've read where we're starting to talk about who is a worthy participant at the table, most of that comes later. Yeah. He, he kind of assumes that you know the practice. <laughs> There's not really anything to say you can't be baptized twice in any parish. Well... Yes. Well, the... Um, when it comes to rebaptism, the first place it really starts showing up is in the Radical Reformation, in the Anabaptist movement in the 15th century. Uh, the, early, the early church, it never even crossed their mind as far as I can tell. I imagine when they read the passage that says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yeah. That was part of what they thought. It is. Uh, and that passage is a good one to refer to. The, um, the main concern that I found in most of the patristics regarding baptism was that if you were baptized, there was now an issue of sins committed post-baptism. So some people, uh, like Constantine being one of them, delayed baptism. But the, the idea of rebaptizing in the early church, it's not even on their radar. Yeah. Any other question? So you mentioned that the Reformation took a lot of took a lot of information from his letters. But the one thing I don't seem to have taken was all of those repeated Ah, yes, the reformers took the uh, the church order from Ignatius, but not the unity. That was thrown in the face of the reformers by the Catholic apologists of the time. Well done. The <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, in Presbyterian circles, we also have um, Mason's warrior children, right? Yeah. The, the interminable squabbling of the Presbyterians. Yes? Uh, I, I'd like to just add to that the Reformers intended to seek the unity of the church. Yes. But they argued that the Catholics didn't have. Yeah, and that is also a good point, that the, uh, the Reformers intended unity and then got tossed by the Romans, uh, which I think there's a good argument for that. Yeah, yeah, and then the, the Lutherans tossed out the Reformed, and then the Dutch did their thing, and the English did their thing, and the English tossed each other out a couple of times. But yes, no, the, uh, his admonitions to unity have not well been heeded. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, yes. Oh, so if JL is quibbling with my, my mixing of metaphors, that we got a feel for a taste of Ignatius instead of a, well, a taste for a taste. <laughs> Terrible. So I put my daughter into a logic class, and this is what happens. All right. 
Enough out of you. <laughs> Anything else? Um, yes. The trip, the Circuit U.S. route mm, yes. that he took, uh, he hadn't written anything before that, eh? We have, n yeah, we have no knowledge of any writings he'd done before his trip. So he was a bishop in Antioch, which was a leading city in the Christian world. Mm-hmm. Antioch was one of the centers um, of the church, one of the five main cities, all the way up probably into the 10th century. Okay, so, so he gets a, uh, he has this meeting with Trajan mm -hmm. and says, okay, you need to go to Rome and die. Yes. Uh, kind of, I guess. And so I guess maybe he just had a change of, uh, of, uh, of calling. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's a good way of looking at that. Maybe he looked at it and he said, well, there are lots of churches between here and Rome, and I bet they need encouragement. He probably did, yeah. <laughs> as far as we know, Ignatius had never written anything else before. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, all of a sudden he's writing letters ferociously. It's, uh, but it's, it's good stuff, and... Reading Ignatius, he's actually, he's one of the, uh, the first century fathers that's easier to read. Uh, he's lucid. He's a good writer. He well expresses his thoughts. So. But in those days, worry about traveling faster than anything, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not entirely sure, again, why the, the route. Because... Uh, yeah, but he was... He was oh, he would love to have seen his friends, surely, but he was arrested. He was going where the soldiers took him. Oh, he was traveling with soldiers during this time. Yes, ten leopards. He, he had leopards. his ten leopards who were training him for the... Uh, A parade. That it could very well be that they were parading him as a trophy. Yeah. He did. It's it's actually that's maybe not a bad idea. Maybe that's what was going on. We don't know, but I I, I can dig it. Putting him on parade. Yep. Don't be a Christian. Look at this horrible old fellow who's writing letters, <laughs> and and saying. Good things and being nice. Yeah. And the thing too is that. The letters would come to the church after. Yes. After he'd gone by. Right? Yes. Yeah, the letters were all. He'd start to write is after he, he gets to know people in that church. Yeah. And then he writes back to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the letters are full of personal greetings to these folks. Uh, with the exception of the Roman church. That one he wrote ahead. Right. He wanted to prepare the ground. He did not want them getting him off. So, yeah. He's a very smart man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for coming, and uh, we have cookies.